Hello, my name is Dan Sarushi. I'm Professor of Public International Law in the University of Oxford. I'm going to be speaking to you today about the United Nations and its contribution to international peace. This is one of the great stories of our civilization. It's the striving for the attainment of peace. And what I'm going to do with you today is talk briefly about the United Nations and the role that it has played in striving to achieve peace internationally. The attainment of peace between nations is a long cherished ideal stretching back in fact to antiquity and yet it's really only in the last hundred years that humanity has collectively started down the path towards considering a commitment to a binding and universal peace. It was the first world war and the great suffering that took place during that war and subsequently in the second world war that led to the establishment initially of the League of Nations Council and really our first attempts then to establish a collective security system. Well, let me start by talking to you about collective security and the collective security system. An ideal of a collective security system is a system that institutes a process whereby a collective measure is taken against a member of a community of states that has violated certain community-defined values. In this ideal of the system, there are three constituent elements. The first is the determination by the community of states of the core values which are sought to be protected uh, and maintained as part of the status quo of the community. The second element of the ideal collective security system is the determination by an authorised representative of the community that a core value has been violated in a particular case. And the third is the, is the determination by the authorised representative of what the response of the community should be to the violation by the recalcitrant state. These three elements are in existence in the system constituted by the United Nations Charter. However, the earlier, and as I already referred to, the first attempt by states at implementing a collective security system in the League of Nations Covenant uh, was not so advanced. Let me briefly discuss with you the League of Nations system because it's important historically for the process of understanding how collective security has developed. And then I'll go on to discuss the United Nations and its contribution to peace. The League of Nations and collective security. Well, in 1919, the nations of the world established the League of Nations by concluding the League of Nations Covenant, which was effectively a treaty between states. And this covenant constituted a system of, of collective security that in the area of um, military action, was decentralized in its application. In other words, it was left up to states on an individual basis whether or not they decided they wanted to follow a recommendation by the League of Nations Council to take military action or indeed economic sanctions to implement economic sanctions against the state that had violated community-defined values. So in other words, there was no compulsory requirement to take action under the League of Nations Covenant as part of the collective security system. Uh, and in fact, in the first, um, one of the first and most important challenges that the collective security system under the League of Nations had to face was in response to um, it Italy's invasion of uh, Abyssinia, which, was, uh, which is today Ethiopia. Uh, the League of Nations Covenant uh, recommended the imposition of economic sanctions against Italy, but these were only partial. 
and the fact that they weren't binding uh, meant that uh, the collective security system then um, started to unravel very quickly. And we then saw the, uh, the, the, the fact that appeasement took, took place instead of a binding collective security system and the League of Nations um, system was effectively dispensed with and, and the world uh, went very quickly, unfortunately, into the Second World War. Despite, however, the failings and ineffectiveness of this system under the League of Nations, uh, it did mark a crucial stage in the evolution of the idea that the nations of the world should act collectively in order to deal with effectively uh, recalcitrant states. With the horrors of the Second World War, and in particular the Holocaust fresh in their minds, the founders of the United Nations stated in the UN Charter that the primary object and purpose of the organization is to maintain, and I quote, international peace and security, and to that end, to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace and for the suppression or of acts of aggression or other breaches of the peace. And the mechanism that once again was envisaged to achieve this peace or maintain or restore this peace was provided for in Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter, which institutes a more effective collective security system than existed under the League. The UN Security Council under Chapter 7 can require a state as a matter of legal obligation, a very important difference from the League of Nations system, can require a state as a matter of legal obligation to take certain action against uh, an aggressor state, for example. Uh, the Security Council has the competence under Article 25 of the Charter to impose a binding obligation uh, to comply with its decisions. This includes, uh, of course, Chapter 7 decisions. And uh, the one exception to this position is that states today are not obligated to, uh, to have to send forces to fight against an aggressor state. Uh, and the reason for this is because Article 43 of the Charter, which envisaged a system whereby states would uh, bind themselves to contribute troops to a UN force, was not implemented during the Cold War and because of the Cold War. When the Security Council orders the taking of collective security measures under Chapter 7 to restore peace, there's a two-stage process that's envisaged. The first is that the Security Council has the power under Article 39, or must under Article 39 of the Charter, make a determination that there is a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. This is a precondition for the use by the Council of its other Chapter 7 powers. So in other words, Article 39 is the doorway through which the Security Council must walk before it can utilise its Chapter 7 powers. Let me discuss very briefly Article 39 and this determination. The Charter does not define um, what a breach of the peace or threat to the peace or act of aggression is. The reason for this was deliberate, to give the Security Council a broad discretion in making Article 39 determinations. This goes back to my earlier point about uh, authorising a determination of a, the value on behalf of the community. And so, in effect, it's the Security Council that's been given the authority to determine on behalf of the international community what values it seeks to protect using the collective security system. And Article 39 is the place where that determination takes place. The General Assembly in 1974 did make 
or did adopt rather a resolution on the definition of aggression, one of the three elements of an Article 39 determination. Uh, but the resolution has not been used in any systematic way by the Security Council when making its determinations. The Security Council will often make an Article 39 determination in a resolution by using the language of Article 39 without making an express reference to the charter provision in the resolution, and that's a very standard practice now. The Security Council has made Article 39 determinations in a number of cases with differing causes. This goes back to my point about differing values constituting a trigger. Some of the different reasons or causes have included human rights violations occurring within a state. Southern Rhodesia and more recently East Timor are examples. Uh, Large-scale human suffering occurring within a state. Rwanda is an example or Somalia. An attack by one, the classic scenario of an attack by one state against another state, Korea and Iraq spring to mind. And the protection of the delivery of humanitarian relief supplies within a state. So we have there examples of Somalia, Bosnia and Albania. And also this has been expanded, the Article 39 determinations, to include even the restoration of democracy within a state, rather controversially in the case of Haiti. More recently, the Security Council has become the focus, and Article 39 determinations has be, have become the focus for multilateral efforts to eradicate terrorism after the terrorist attacks of uh, September 11, 2001, in New York, against the United States. I briefly want to pause there because I think it's a very important feature of the collective security system that's often overlooked just how important this determination of a community value by the Security Council is. So, for example, in the case of Somalia in 1992, the Security Council in Resolution 794 made a historic determination, and a determination that, in my view, ranks alongside the Kellogg-Briand Pact, the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, and the UN um, Charter and League of Nations Covenant themselves in its, in its um, normative importance. Let me explain why. Resolution 794, in that resolution, the Security Council decided that the magnitude of human tragedy, and this is the, the exact wording, the magnitude of human tragedy occurring within Somalia constituted a threat to international peace and security. Now that's a remarkable determination. The fact that what is occurring in a small, relatively insignificant in geopolitical terms, country in Africa, constituted a threat to international peace and security and therefore required a collective security response. That's a very important step in the, in the development of an effective collective security system because it represents states that don't necessarily have an interest in the particular case being discussed, making a determination on behalf of the collective good. And that's a very important development. And in fact, subsequently, the United States, to its credit, sent in um, a large number of forces uh, pursuant to the authorization contained in 794, and I'll come to that when we discuss um, military enforcement action. But that is estimated to have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in the case of Somalia. Finally, about an Article 39 determination. Um, this is, it's important to note that this doesn't necessarily entail a decision by the council that the state involved is a wrongdoer. 
The Security Council will often determine that the situation um, uh, within a country it constitutes a threat to peace and security or breach of peace and security uh, without necessarily finding fault. Uh, obviously, in the case of aggression, this is a bit more difficult because uh, it's, it's hard to avoid the incidental determination that a state is a wrongdoer. However, here the council has applied, uh, applied the label of aggression uh, very, very sparingly in the majority of recent cases where it's made such a determination. Uh, an example where it did make such a determination uh, is, of course, in Resolution 660 in response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Um, where the, the council, as part of its response, um, actually it was in Resolution 667, I beg your pardon, where the, the council strongly condemned the aggressive acts perpetrated by Iraq against the diplomatic premises and personnel in, in Kuwait. But in fact, it didn't in Resolution 660, so I stand corrected here, it didn't make the determination uh, relating to aggression, but rather found that it was simply a breach of the peace. Now, the, the general reluctance of the Council to make such determinations, even in the clear or classic case of one state invading another, um, is possibly to avoid the long-lasting stigma that accompanies such a label being applied to a state, and in some cases to the peoples of a state. So once the Council has made, has walked through the doorway, has made this Article, Article 39 determination, then the second stage of the collective security process uh, kicks in. And this is what should be done in response to uh, the determination that community values have been violated. And the Security Council here has the power under Chapter 7 to order two main types of measures. Uh, the imposition of economic sanctions, which are binding pursuant to Article 25 of the Charter on all member states, and, and the, uh, the ordering of military action, which, as I've already mentioned, is not binding because of the failure to implement the Article 43 agreements pursuant to the UN Charter. Let me first deal with economic sanctions. Well, the Council can, under Article 41, uh, impose these sanctions against the state. And they have done so uh, both in relation to uh, the... The, the types of determinations that I've talked about, um, whether it's the invasion by one state of another. So in the case of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, the council imposed a comprehensive economic embargo against Iraq, but also in more limited circumstances where uh, there's a threat to a civil war that, may, that, that appears to be about to take place, and the Security Council may, for example, impose an arms embargo against the state a more specific type of economic sanction. The members of the Security Council sit as also as members of the sanctions committees that are charged with the responsibility for the effective oversight and implementation of each sanctions regime. And in the case of a comprehensive sanctions regime, um, such as the one against Iraq imposed by Resolution 661, uh, the sanctions committee is also responsible for determining whether specific goods fall within the humanitarian exceptions that, will often, that are always provided uh, by these uh, comprehensive economic sanctions regimes. When imposing economic sanctions, the Council will often require that all the world states must stop trade with and investment in the target state, especially in the, ca the case of comprehensive sanctions. As a result, the population of a country may in some cases suffer due to shortages of effective food and medical supplies that were being imported into the country that are no longer allowed. 
And the effect of economic sanctions particularly, uh, in some cases, affects the poorer sections of a country's population, while the members of the government whose very actions cause the imposition of sanctions uh, are often or typically not affected. This uh, problem is exacerbated uh, where you have a small ruling elite in a country whose actions have led to the, the sanctions, um, but who in no way will be affected by the sanctions. And so it's in the light of this experience that the Security Council has uh, changed slightly the design and implementation of economic sanctions to, so that they're more sophisticated now. And we now call these smart sanctions. And these often involve a target, a focus rather, on a target state's ruling elite, and in some cases, members of their families, by imposing, uh, for example, a worldwide asset freeze and travel bans against the members of the elite and their family. This was done, for example, in the cases of Iraq and Haiti. The implementation of economic sanctions by states within their domestic legal order, so now moving from the, inter the international plane to the domestic legal order, so the implementation by states within their domestic legal order has seen the challenge in domestic and in some cases regional courts of these implementation measures, often on the grounds of human rights. And an example of this is provided by the relatively recent Cardi case before the European Court of Justice. The use of economic sanctions under Article 41 is not a precondition that must be fulfilled before the Council can use uh, its military enforcement powers under Article 42. But in practice, it's very useful uh, since it will often provide diplomatic and other processes of conflict resolution the time that they need to try and resolve a, 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 a situation or a breach of a community value before the next step of the use of military force is used by the Security Council. And this is the two-stage process that the Council, for example, employed against Iraq when the economic sanctions imposed against Iraq looked as if they were not going to force Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait, then the Council as a final measure in Resolution 678, the now famous Resolution 678, authorised member states to use military force against Iraq. So let me now turn to examine Article 42 of the Charter and the use of military enforcement powers. The power, the, the, the power to do so under Article 42 is... Um, is very, is very broad. Um, the Cold War saw member states unwilling to give the Council and its military organ under the UN Charter, the Military Staff Committee, the power of command and control over their armed forces. And so as a result, as I've already mentioned, Article 43 agreements were not implemented. The consequence, the legal consequence of this is that the Security Council, with the end of the Cold War, wanted to take action against Iraq for its invasion of Kuwait on the 1st of August 1990. But it didn't have the power to require states to take military action. So what it did in a novel development, it delegated the power to use, power to, to order the use of force and to exercise command and control over the use of force. Those two powers that are contained in Article 46 and 47, the Charter, sorry, 42, 46 and 47. It delegated those powers to member states. And the Council in Resolution 678 adopted this phrase, which has become the common phrase that's now uh, adopted in all subsequent Security Council resolution. It authorised 
the use of all necessary measures, and I use that in quotation marks, all necessary measures. And that's shorthand for the use of military enforcement action. And so the Security Council delegated to member states these, these very broad powers, both to initiate the use of force and to exercise command and control over the use of force. And it was then left up to states on an individual basis whether or not they decided to take up the delegation of powers. Now, in one of my books, The United Nations and the Development of Collective Security, I examine uh, this in some detail, this question of delegation. And by way of conclusion, because I don't have time uh, to go into every element of, of that uh, discussion, but, but by way of conclusion, I found that these delegations do not violate the letter or the spirit of the UN Charter, but that there are some important legal limitations that flow from application of the, the public law maxim of delegatus non potest delegare that apply to the Security Council. And the law in this area requires that the Security Council retain authority and control over the exercise of its delegated powers, whether by member states or indeed by a regional organisations such as NATO. Because it's not only individual member states that can take up the delegation of powers, it's also regional organisations or arrangements that, that may decide to take up the delegation of powers acting collectively. And that has the advantage that they have a, an, they already have an established command structure um, that allows them to be very efficient and effective in their pursuit of the mandate. But coming back to my legal limitation that the council exercise authority and control over the exercise of these, these powers, this has three uh, important, this has a consequence that there are three important conditions uh, that must be imposed by the council uh, on the delegation of its powers, on the exercise of these delegated powers. The first is that the council should stipulate clearly in its resolution um, the delegates powers, the objectives for which these powers have been delegated. And this position has been accepted in numerous uh, statements by members of the Security Council, more generally UN member states and the Secretary General himself. The acceptance by states of a delegation assumes that states then agree to exercise the power um, solely in order to achieve the council's stipulated objective. In fact, states, as is well known, do not have the right under international law to uh, use force because of the general prohibition on the use of force contained in Article 2.4 of the Charter, uh, except in cases of self-defence. And in the vast majority of cases uh, relating to UN military enforcement action, uh, it goes far beyond the case of self-defence under Article 51. The second condition is that the Council must conduct a continuous review of the enforcement action through the exercise of supervision, supervision in practice. And the, um, the third condition is that the Security Council uh, must impose on the state or the regional organisation that is exercising delegated powers, a reporting requirement. And this is necessary for the council to be able to exercise the effective supervision and control. And all three of these conditions have been uh, consistently applied by the Security Council and complied with uh, by states in the exercise of delegated powers. Let me turn now uh, to move to another area of the UN's contribution to peace and security. So having now dealt with 
the UN collective security system. Let me now turn to some other areas in which the, um, the Security Council has operated. UN peacekeeping. Well, the United Nations, I'm pleased to say, although it's not news anymore, in 1988 won the Nobel Prize for um, its peacekeeping operations. Uh, peacekeeping has, in fact, been one of the most successful contributions of the UN to conflict management. These UN peacekeeping forces now carry out wide-ranging functions uh, that include the observance of ceasefires, um, truces and armistices, um, frontier control, security functions in zones placed under the UN control, and assisting in the restoration of law and order, including in some cases a, a function that's similar to policing. All UN peacekeeping forces uh, have been established under the authority of the Security Council, with the exception of uh, UN, the, the UN, UNSF and UNF-1, the UN Emergency Force in, um, between Egypt and Israel, uh, that were established by the General Assembly. In legal terms, uh, UN peacekeeping forces are UN subsidiary organs, and they're under the authority and control of the Secretary General. In practice, oh, sorry, authority and control of the United Nations Security Council. But in practice, the, Sec the Security Council delegates to the Secretary General the authority to exercise command and control over the forces. Now, in turn, the Secretary General, simply because the Secretary General is too busy and it's, it's not really um, appropriate for, for him or her to exercise the types of functions involved in this area, um, they delegate the power to a special representative to whom the UN force commander reports. Now, the UN Charter doesn't provide in express terms for peacekeeping operations. There's no mention at all in the UN Charter of peacekeeping. Uh, and this led to the questioning in the early years of its constitutional basis, the legality of the establishment of peacekeeping under the UN Charter. This was, uh, this was subsequently affirmed, though, in the famous 1962 expenses case. Uh, this was a case that was brought, um, well, it was a case that it was an advisory opinion that was sought by the International Court uh, because two UN member states uh, did not want to contribute to the funding of UN peacekeeping, um, primarily in the case of Congo in, Congo, in the case of ONUC, but also, I think, in the case of UNF2, the UN emergency force um, between Israel and, and Egypt. And the question that was asked of, this, of, the, of the International Court of Justice was whether or not uh, the establishment of UN peacekeeping was lawful. Because, of course, if it wasn't lawful under the Charter, then the General Assembly didn't have the competence to assess, as part of its binding budgetary determination, that member states had to pay for UN peacekeeping forces. And once again, I'm pleased to say that the International Court of Justice upheld the legality of establishment. And they did so on the basis largely of the Security Council possessing an implied power under Chapter 7 to do so. The main, UN, um, the main principles, rather, that govern UN peacekeeping uh, today were, in fact, established at its inception, but also um, set out in the, the 1962 expenses case. Uh, the two main principles uh, as follows. The first is the requirement of consent from both the host state and the state's contributing forces. And the second is the limitation that peacekeepers should not use force in military force in a proactive manner. 
the idea here is that UN peacekeeping um, forces should only use force in self-defense if they're attacked. The exception in the early 90s to this position uh, was where the Security Council engaged in what is uh, now known as muscular peacekeeping. This is where um, Security Council, um, uh, the Security Council entrusted with peacekeeping forces that were deployed in situations largely of um, internal civil wars, uh, the authority to use force to achieve specified objectives. An example of this was in the case of Somalia, where the Security Council in resolutions 814 and 837 um, conferred on UNISOM 2, the UN operation in Somalia, and this was a UN peacekeeping force, it started out life as, as UNISOM 1, and then its mandate was changed in UNISOM 2 um, to use force to establish a secure environment within Somalia, but also to arrest and detain General Aidid, who was widely suspected of having carried out attacks on UN peacekeepers. UN forces, uh, UN peacekeeping forces consist of national contingents under the command of their national officers. Military discipline is a matter for those national officers and, and indeed for the, the state, the contributing state. The duty of these national um, officers is, however, to the United Nations and not to their national government. That's, they're there in a particular um, country as part of a peace, UN peacekeeping mission, and so their interest is uh, to achieve the United Nations objectives and interests. And these officers, to reflect that interest, are responsible to the UN force commander, and that's the, the way in which the chain of command operates, um, to the UN from the individual troop contributing um, commanders, they're responsible to the UN force commander, and above him or her to the um, UN special, rep uh, special representative. It's standard procedure for an agreement to be entered into between the United Nations and the host state, and this state is a forces agreement, as they're, they're called, is virtually identical for all UN forces. And this provides for the international status of the UN force, and importantly, its general immunity from local jurisdiction. And it seeks to provide in, its in their terms an appropriate balance between the international mandate given to the force and the sovereignty of the host state. Finally, due to considerations of time, I'm simply going to mention two additional important areas of the UN's work in contributing to peace and security. The first is that the Security Council has established international criminal tribunals as a measure to contribute to peace and security. And it's done so in the cases, for example, of Rwanda, the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, uh, Yugoslavia, the ICTY, International Criminal Tri Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and also more recently in the case of Lebanon with the UN Special Tribunal for Lebanon. The second uh, important contribution that the Council has made in terms of my final concluding comments uh, is that the Council has carried out through uh, trans, sorry, through territorial administrations, the governance of a state or part of the territory of a state for an interim period, where there's been the collapse of state institutions, uh, widespread paralysis of governments and the, and, and the breakdown of law and order. These UN transitional administrations are established by the Council as UN subsidiary organs pursuant to the, the Council's Chapter 7 powers. Examples of these uh, territorial administrations uh, the case of the UN Transitional Administration Authority, rather, in Cambodia, or what's known as UNCTAC to its friends, um, the UN Interim Administration Mission in Kosovo, or UNMIC, 
and the UN Transitional Administration in East Timor, or UNTAID, it's a bit more difficult to say. And the powers exercised by these subsidiary organs are very broad-ranging. For example, in the case of um, East Timor, or UNTAID, it was given by Council Resolution 1272, and I quote here, overall responsibility for the administration of East Timor. Very broad powers. And it was empowered to, and here it's a quote again, exercise all legislative and executive authority, including the administration of justice in East Timor. This included the establishment of an effective administration, assisting in the development of civil service services, and supporting the capacity building for self-government. UNTAID was led by a UN transitional administrator who was responsible for all aspects of the UN's work in East Timor. And once again, the transitional administrator had very broad powers that included the ability to enact new laws and regulations and to suspend or repeal existing laws. And this, is, uh, this has been met with a mixed reaction, the, the very broad powers that have been conferred on these UN transitional administrations. But that's mitigated to a degree by the fact that they're usually interim administrations. Conclusions or concluding remarks. Well, in my view, the, the operation of an effective collective security system is one of the most urgent needs facing our world society today. We've been reminded recently of what happens when the system doesn't operate. Um, the, the genocide in Rwanda of an estimated 800,000 people in the space of less than four months in 1994. However, the establishment of an effective collective security system, or for that matter, peace alone, doesn't depend on the conclusion of treaties. It depends on the political will of nations. And this in turn depends largely on the peoples of the world wanting such a system to work. The most important for this collective will existing, the most important precondition for this collective will to exist, is a genuine acceptance by nations and their peoples of the organic unity of the world. In the illuminating words of a great thinker of the 19th century, and I quote, the well-being of mankind, humanity, its peace and security are unattainable unless and until its unity is firmly established. And an essential part of this unity is that it's not for a person to, to pride him or herself um, on the love exclusively of their own country, but rather for that person to love the whole world. The earth is but one country and humanity, its citizens. It's the, this more inclusive loyalty of persons as citizens of the world uh, that will ensure the effective operation of a future collective security system and, in my view, is the surest guarantor of peace between the nations. Thank you.